always reach out to you to somebody. There's always help. The second thing is that you gotta be like a rubber band, okay? And usually, when times are good, you see the rubber bands just kind of relax. But when things start getting hard, is you gotta tighten up and be resilient, okay? The storm is is that old saying says what the, the storm has come, but it's not here to stay. Um, and and as you the, the harder you pull that rubber band, the more resilient it becomes. So you gotta become aware. Of it. You also gotta be very uh, aware of yourself, okay? Uh, just because you're the leader doesn't mean you're the smartest guy in the room. And if you are, you right. need to. Okay? Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, you make, you're going to make mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from those mistakes. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, a leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. This is episode 101 with special guest, Jesus Eddie Campa. Title is Leading Through Adversity, Tools You Can Use to Navigate Today's Leadership Challenges. Jesus is a unique guest. He is our first guest that we've ever had who comes from a long history in law enforcement, not just in law enforcement, but leadership roles. And he's going to talk about some of the challenges of leading in the 21st century in the midst of racial division, cultural divisiveness, communities being totally separated. He's going to talk about the challenges of leadership in the public sector and the ways those translate over into the private sector. Get ready to get some very actionable ideas that you can use to enhance your leadership effectiveness, especially in the midst of adversity. Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. Well, I'm intrigued to be here today, and today the word is intrigued because we have a unique guest, at least for us. Today, our guest is Jesus, formerly known as Eddie Campa, and Jesus is the first law enforcement officer that we have had as a guest, but we're not going to be talking about that directly. We're more going to be talking about leadership, but from that law enforcement perspective, which also folds into business just Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, Eddie was born and raised. There I did it. Look at that. I'm going to get it. It's all right. Hey, Zeus. That's all right. Hey, Zeus was born and raised in El Paso, Texas, where he currently lives. Uh, He served 27 years in law enforcement, including several uh, opportunities to be chief deputy and chief of police. What I really want to highlight, because I know we'll get into this, is on his last tour as a chief of police, he was in a city that was very deeply impacted by racial division. Hmm. And he created an initiative, uh, very innovative, called No Colors, No Labels, that was designed to remove some of the preconceived notions that the police were racially motivated. And that initiative created a very safe community. In fact, in 2017, Jesus was named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Humanitarian of the Year by the NAACP. So we're going to get into more of his story, but what I think you're going to learn here is Jesus is someone who has led uh, in difficult times and uh, uncertain, challenging times and in very uh, difficult communities. Uh, And that's why he speaks a lot on leading through adversity, whether it's been in a community, in an organization, 
or even in some sort of community initiative. So welcome, Jesus. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to the great conversation. Oh, so am I. So give us a little uh, more of the taste of the story, Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, born and raised in El Paso, Texas to a single parent, my mom, you know, she uh, was a garment worker her entire life, has an eighth grade education, actually raised by my grandmother. I had a father figure who was a police officer, and that's kind of how I got into law enforcement. And uh, like you said, you know, I've served uh, proudly El Paso County for 20 years uh, and retired as the chief deputy, went on to Hector County as a chief, went to Marshall as the chief of police there, had uh, some interesting times, to say the least, in that community. <laughs> And uh, went over to the state of Oklahoma, became the state director of the law enforcement agency overseeing regular, regulatory issues with police, with the police, such as licensing, education, and training. Finally retired at 27 years, and now I'm doing what I want to do on my terms and enjoying my family for a change. <laughs> well, say a little more about what it exactly it is you're doing now. Before we get into the backstory. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I've had a security consulting firm for many years. Uh, in 2017, I finally actually formalized it into an LLC. So we, uh, you know, from becoming a consult, we were a security consulting firm, consulting uh, different types of businesses uh, internationally as well. And now we are also a uh, security guard service. We install cameras and stuff like that. We do a lot of uh, um consulting for a lot of industries. And then uh, in 2018, I started Leading Through Adversity, which is a coaching, mentoring um, uh, program that we developed. And it's also a sounding block for CEOs and leaders, because as you all know, being at the top uh, is awfully lonely. And sometimes you just need somebody to talk to. Yes. Uh, so I uh, just finished writing a book, working on my PhD, and uh, it's got a lot going on. I, I mean, I retired, but I feel like I'm busier now than I was before. That's awesome. But it's because you I want now to. you're getting a PhD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people do that reverse. <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, I'm still kind of sitting here sometimes wondering why. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. Something you said. I I didn't read it from your bio, but I read it. Something about that the law enforcement needs to mirror the community it serves, mm -hmm. and that's my. I'm not an I'm not an expert on this, but I would say that's generally not the case. Right. Uh, there's very few communities that that's actually true, uh, except let's be actually where it is true is when it's it's a large, predominantly white uh, law enforcement department and you've got a predominantly white neighborhood. That's probably the only time you see that. So can you talk a little bit about that philosophy and how you've started started to move the needle when you were still in law enforcement? Yeah, so you know, I think uh, I've always kind of been the, the the oddball when it comes to law enforcement because of my way of, of thinking, and I've always thought that uh, law enforcement uh, has long time been in need of reform. But the first and the most easiest place to do is is, is um, to have your organization reflect the community that you serve. You know, uh, and I think that that way we would avoid a lot of the issues that we currently have now because uh, you know, as if the department reflects the community, then you have a lot of empathy and you can relate to the cultures and of, of that organization. And if it doesn't, you should still have a lot of cultural awareness and cultural development so that whatever de demographics represent, whatever demographics your organization is made up of would at least understand and have the empathy for the community that they're serving. So we, we here we are, we're recording this in late March, 2021. And I'm, I'm not going to recite statistics. I don't have them, personally. I'm not going to claim to be this expert. But 
I think at least according to what the news has showed us, and I think we've got to be sensitive to that, last year, 2020 and continuing now, is certainly been a highly divisive time in this country. Uh, and certainly part of that divisiveness has, has touched upon law enforcement, not exclusively, but it, it's been a mix. I mean, it's been a messy year. And can you talk about what, I mean, you were in that leadership role back in the late 2000, uh, 2017 and 18. Uh, you've got this role today. What are you seeing changing, and, but especially from the lens of leadership? Yeah, so, you know, it's funny because a lot of people say that, you know, this is something that is, that is new to law enforcement, and it really isn't. If, if you all would uh, go back and, and to, the, to the 70s and late 60s, early 70s, even the 80s, you'll see that there was a lot of issues with the police uh, organizations and the citizens. The only difference is that back then it took, you know, 7, 10, 12 days for us to find out about it because we didn't have social media. <laughs> now everybody has a camera and everybody's rolling. Everybody's a news reporter. So everything is instantaneously. I mean, you, you could be in, in, in uh, you know, in China and, and an incident happens there and within milliseconds, it's all over the world. So I think that was one of the issues is that, you know, we've, we've always had these issues. We were just not, it just wasn't uh, rapidly available that, you, that we knew about it, right? But I will tell you that, uh, and I don't want to turn this into a political game or anything like that, but the last, you know, the last, for sure, for me, as my experience, the last uh, six to seven years have been very crucial for law enforcement because we've kind of been placed in a, the situation that it's us against them and them against us when in reality it really isn't and we've been used as pawns a lot mm. um 90 99% of law enforcement officers were great people we did this because we love what we do it's that 1% that makes us look bad and unfortunately that's the 1% that the media and society tends to glorify uh and that's what you really see but you miss out on a lot of the great things that all the men and women of the <laughs> law enforcement community are actually doing so you actually install video cameras and you were talking about how everybody is a, is a news reporter in a sense. And I would imagine that puts a lot of pressure on the officers who are out, you know, connecting with people and everything is under scrutiny. How is that something that you always feel? Is that something that you just understand when you get into this, that that's, that's part of the game? Um, yeah, and has that changed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, back in the days, if you watch the old movies, like, you know, like the Chuck Norris Code of Silence movies and stuff like that, <laughs> and you see the officer going rogue, you always have that one witness that's looking out at the corner of their eye. and they yeah. witness it. <laughs> Or you have that one security camera that nobody knew was there and it's watching. So we've always been scrutinized. It's always been there. It's just that now, I mean, it's been it's been multiplied a hundred times because it, literally everybody has a video camera recording device, the ability to go live. So, yeah, it's actually affected us, you know, not as much as you would really think because it's always been there, but now it's just multiplied. So, yeah, the more eyes that are out there, we have to be a lot more sensitive. And, you know, and, and in reality, you know, society has really changed a lot in the way we feel and do things. You know, there's this current movement of, I think it's called cancel, cancel culture or something like that, where they're trying to cancel everything. You know, everybody's is impacted by everything apparently nowadays, but as a police officer, you, you, you've always known that you're, you're being scrutinized and watched. But in reality, that should never uh, impact the way you do your job if you're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. 
And those are the type of people that we need on our on, on our law enforcement side is, is those that are going to do the right thing, regardless yeah. of who's looking or not. And I actually welcome the use of cameras and stuff like that because it helps us weed out the bad ones. Yeah, good. So Jesus, your, your, um, your theme of your business and your topic is about leading through adversity. Let's get back to what has that meant to you? I mean, obviously, you're, I assume you're coming to the table saying, I've led through adversity. Let me talk about it. But what's, what are some of those key elements of that adversity where you've stepped through leadership? Well, you know, uh, adversity is all around us, right? And, and, and depending on who you're talking to, adversity is, is just another word for opportunity, right? But uh, when, before you mature enough to understand that, it feels like the world is closing in on you, right? So, you know, uh, on top of all the fact that you're always being scrutinized for the decisions that you make and everybody's an expert on leadership, even though they've never led anything in their entire <laughs> life, um, you know, they, you, 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 have a, you have to walk this very balanced tightrope because you know, as a chief of police, you're 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 be, behooved to a lot of people. You're you know you you've got to please the city manager, the mayor, the city council, your your the, the citizens. You gotta you gotta please the police officers. You gotta please the union, and and it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't on the decisions that you make. And a lot of people have lost the foresight of what leadership really is, and a lot of people feel that leadership is mostly based on. I will follow the leader and say he's a good leader and a qualified leader if what he does benefits me. <laughs> that's not how you define leadership. Right. You know, and a lot of people forget that in leadership, you have a mission to accomplish. You were brought in to, to mm. set a goal and a mission. And along that, you got to pick your leadership style, whether you're servant or coaching or a dictator or whatever. But a lot of people get confused with that, right? So in my personal career, you know, my career is one adversity after another. Um, uh, my professional career is because, you know, I'm often criticized for every decision that I make, you know, um, you know, I went to a very racially motivated community and being the first minority to lead a very racially uh, motivated <laughs> police department didn't go over very well for a, a lot of times, especially wow. the decisions that I make, you know, here in El Paso, I've been criticized for a lot of the decisions I made, even though if you look at the big picture, we did a lot of positive things. It's just that I did not play the buddy game, even though I was accused of playing the buddy game. Again, with the fact of social media and the ability to every, for everybody to be able to blog or whatever, you can put out a story about anybody and anything, accusing them of everything underneath the sun. And you have no way to defend yourself because, you know, if it's on Google, it's the truth, right? <laughs> so people have forgotten how to do their research. So regardless of what leader you are, you're always dealing with adversity. And that's just, that's just the personal adversity of people just talking smack about you. You got to deal with the adversity of the criminal. You're dealing with the criminals. You're dealing with the criminal element. You're dealing with nature. You're dealing. So you got all of these things being thrown at you, and everybody expects you to walk around like this. <laughs> Big smile on the face. Yeah, you know, when in reality it's not. And you know, I think a lot of the good leaders are starting to leave our profession for that same reason, is that they just can't win. And in a lot of uh, organizations around the nation, a lot of leaders are being set up to fail. Because they don't look at things the right way, you know, instead of just sitting down with all the stakeholders, the city managers, the police department and coming together in a unified plan that's going to work for everybody. Everybody is, I'm the expert, I'm the expert, this is what I want, this is what I want. And the fact that a lot of, um, you know, um, hiring committees that are out there hiring chiefs will say what is the popular thing to say or the politically correct thing, hold them accountable 
uh, diversity, 21st century policing. Then they hire that guy that's going to deliver that. And once he starts delivering that, he or she is now, wait a minute, we didn't really mean that. We just had to say it so we could win the election next month. You know, and so you're starting to see a lot of, you know, people that are just kind of playing the game just to get along for a paycheck. And you're starting to lose. Yeah, so they're not really bought into it. Yeah, who aren't bought into it. And and that's that's where we're at right now. And that's what leading through adversity does. And and it teaches new leaders and current leaders that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to upset people at times, but you're going to have to deal with the consequences that come with it. And and I think, um, you know, society has done a horrible job of preparing leaders to deal with that side of the house. And that's what we do. We're, we're a sounding block and coaching, mentoring, and we have nothing to gain. I'm not after your police chief job. So when you call me and bounce ideas off of me and tell me what you want to tell me and talk bad about your city manager or whoever you're going to talk bad about you, you know, we say, yeah, been there, done that. So let me tell you how I did it. And then you go off and you do what you want. You know, gotcha. that, that's what we're So I, I want to clarify this since we're on audio here. You mentioned the first minority hire. So um, can you speak to, from, from a racial or ethnic perspective, how do you identify? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, in today's society, I'm not quite sure how I do identify anymore. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a Hispanic male. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Hispanic male, born and raised in El Paso, third generation. Um, you know, uh, so I consider myself to be a Hispanic uh, American, uh, American of Mexican descent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the way I identify myself. I, I'm an American first, but very proud of my Mexican heritage. Yeah, well, right. thank you for that because I think you know people are listening, going, "What does he mean?" Uh, <laughs> so, so it sounds like a lot of your work is your consulting, coaching, and mentoring work is in law enforcement. Is that true? Well, the majority of it is, but we're starting to see a shift because you know I'm also an entrepreneur and a businessman and. And now that we're, we're networking and making different contacts uh, in, in a whole different market, uh, we're starting to see different people coming on. You know, for instance, we have uh, we have some CEOs and, and vice presidents of of um, some uh, some of the largest grocery chains uh, in the nation that have joined up because of some of the consulting work that I uh, the security consulting work that I do. And then they hear about what I'm doing and have come on board with us. And uh, we just recently uh, got a, a large contract with a one of the largest uh, insurance companies in the nation to do a lot of their leadership development for their um, uh, new management that's coming on board. So we're very excited. Excellent. Well, that's cool. So, you know, a few years ago, you stepped into that community and I forget the description you gave, but you came up with this initiative called No Collar, No Labels. And it was described as very innovative. You were recognized by the NAACP. My question is, I guess I want to dig into it a little bit because, you know, words are, words are, you said a moment ago, words are kind of meaningless, right? What's really the under? So what was the under beyond the label of what that initiative was? So, you know, in reality, You know, when I when I got hired for that position, I always joke around the fact that the reason I was chosen was because they couldn't hire another Caucasian male at the time. Uh, they were never going to hire an African-American. So they settled for this little caramel Hispanic dude <laughs> to come in and, and kind of change the culture. And, and that was the plan. You know, we had a very uh, progressive, uh, forward thinking, visionary mayor at the time. 
and a city manager and a city council. So they wanted culture change. They wanted us to implement 21st century policing. Little did I know, um, you know, had I known the whole truth, I probably would not have taken the job. Uh, but when I got there, uh, you know, that community in its town square had sold slaves and disciplined them during the mm. slave time, you know. And so there was an inbred uh, racial division in, in that community, you know, of a superiority. So when I got there, you know, I started saying some things and I started saying that there was some disappropriate, disappropriation of policing, over-policing in certain communities, underservicing other communities. Um, and I saw that the community was, you know, literally at my first town hall meeting, you know, they went up there and it was kind of funny because I was like, they, they kind of started yelling at me and telling me, you're just another one of them. And, and, and you don't understand the struggles of being a person of color and, and being a minority. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, um, I'm brown. I am a person of color. And uh, so we had a lot of things to show, right? So I created this program called No Colors, No Labels. And basically what, if you would listen to what, what it actually was designed to do was to remove the preconceived notion mm. that the community has that the police are racially motivated. Okay, that's what the community heard. Unfortunately, my police officers heard to remove the conception that the police are racially motivated. They heard that we're racially motivated. I said, no, it's a preconceived notion that the community has that you are. Unfortunately, in that town, they kind of were, so we kind of, it was kind of hard, right? But um, so the No Colors, No Labels was basically saying this. Look, you know, Jeff and Craig, I know you as Jeff and Craig. And uh, Morton Freeman made this very famous. You know, I don't refer to you as two white gentlemen that I know, and you don't refer to me as that brown Hispanic guy that you know. You know, so why do we stop this whole colors and labeling thing? Just call each other by who we are, what we are, <laughs> get to know each other break bread together. And that was one of the beautiful things about the No Colors, No Labels initiative. We had these cultural awareness meals where we, we would come in and highlight a certain culture and educate everybody about the culture, the background of the food, mm -hmm. the music, and this and that. And it brought people together. And before, by the end of the series, you know, by the time we were done in, in, in 2006, 2015, um, doing that series, we had two individuals. We had a very wealthy oil businessman, very wealthy, set in his ways, for lack of better words, was considered a racist. And the female NAACP president were always at odds and hated each other. Well, by the end of the series, they were sitting together at the same table, holding hands, hugging, loving each other. And awesome. everyone would come to me and say, you know what? Hell just froze over. <laughs> and, uh, they're like, how the hell did you accomplish that? Wow. And it's just the fact is that people are so afraid to get to know the unknown. Yeah. And they just want to criticize it as opposed to letting you know that. And so that's what we mm -hmm. did. You know, with that, we, we changed the way we did our policing. We, we went to a, a, uh, a uh, predictive policing mindset. We went to using Comstat and we started spreading around. We also created the Cool Cops ice cream truck developed a partnership with Bluebell Ice Cream. They provided the ice cream. Oh, I took Blue a whole ambulance, turned it into an ice cream truck. Luckily, never got sued by Inner Circle because we changed <laughs> the lyrics to their song, What Are You Going to Do, Bad Boys, When They Come For You? Oh. And then we added the part, Eat Ice Cream. You know? And, uh, <laughs> so we did that around with the community, and the kids loved it, and we built a great relationship. Our crime rate came down by 20%. I was finally able to wow. get a fully staffed police department, Unfortunately, and this is where I, I consider it my greatest victory, but also my, my, my biggest defeat, is I could not get 
the majority of the police officers on board, you know, they were set in their ways. They didn't like what I was doing. They criticized everything that I did. The, the racial, I had never experienced the culture uh, shock that I did when I got there, like I had. Uh, it started impacting my family. You know, I mean, mm. again, being accused of everything under the sun in the sky. I mean, one of the greatest things was I loved it. I loved it because I was like, that's not a bad idea. They're like, you know, uh, we got this Mexican police chief here and he's going to bring a taco truck for Taco Tuesday and sell tacos out of the police department. And I kind of wish I had thought of that because I didn't think <laughs> of that, you know, it never really happened. So, you know, wow. I just made the conscious decision to leave. But luckily, the community, the community, which is what we are, public servants, and that's what we serve, saw that we made a change. Um, yeah. we, we went out there. And that's why the biggest honor I've got is that Martin Luther King Award just means yeah. the world to me. Well, it seems like the the culture in an organization can can make or break, you know, the the change initiatives that you're talking about. And certainly where you're stepping in and people are set in their ways and, you know, it, a lot of people don't want to change. But what did you find that you couldn't get rid of people that were absolutely opposed to the initiatives you were doing or how how did that work? So, so let me tell you that, that that was one of the biggest that's that's the beautiful difference between the private sector and the public sector. In the public sector, you have you know civil service, you have unions, you have all of these things that that you have to go through hoops and ladders to to get rid of people, even if you have documented proof that they're not working out. Yeah. Which by all means, I believe in equal rights and protection for all employees, right? But sometimes you go a little bit overboard. And you know, when you're dealing in certain communities, sometimes you don't know who knows who and who's <laughs> who's, in, who, who's indebted to somebody or the other, right? Right. And I just happen to be one of that guy, just to coin the phrase back when old phrase, which some of you may remember, is you know, homie, don't play that game, you know. <laughs> um, so I believe that you know you got to move forward, and I accept change. And two things police officers hate, and that's the way things are in change. So um, <laughs> you know, it's just like there's no winning. That's what I mean. There's just no winning, you know. <laughs> And it takes a very I don't think that's person. limited to police officers. No, you're right. No. It's that's not. a great. It's not. I've never it, heard it, it said that way. I, that feels like a lot really of good. people yeah. in corporate America. And, and you're right. And you're right. And, and having <laughs> dealing with now in the private sector, I do see a little bit of that, but you have a little more control of it because, for instance, they're my companies. I set the vision. I set the policies. I set the standards. And if you don't like it, well, you can go open your own company and do it the way you want. And there's no repercussion, right? Uh, in in law enforcement, you know, you you have to you're be you you have to, you know, one of the things is is it's always the popular kid in 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 that organization that can make your break. If he likes you, you're you're wonderful. If he doesn't like you and he's connected to the city manager, the city council, your life just becomes a living hell. You know. Now this is a very interesting situation because you, as chief of police you're the top of the totem pole in that organization. Now you still have to report to the city manager and, and so forth, but inside of that organization, you're the top, but yet you're, you're still coming in from the outside. And so there's, there's that other factor in there. And Jeff and I talk a lot about the, the power differentials that certain people have. And yet it seems like you weren't able to really monopolize on or to take advantage of that. Yeah, you know, which was which is weird because, like I, I've, I've spent many years going, how did something that went so right go <laughs> so wrong? Yeah, it's like how can you have all these great successes and say there weren't they were not on board? 
but they were on board because they knew it benefited them. I mean, hell, everything that we did the following year when I left, you know, they, they got almost like a 19% pay raise because of all the popularity of all the good things we did. <laughs> but now, now they've stopped doing everything that we had established before. Oh, you know, no. the cool cop ice cream is gone. The the community, uh, the faith-based initiative that I started gone. You know? mm. So, I mean, like I said, they attached themselves to what benefited them at the time and detached themselves what they didn't benefit. So, you know, uh, and it's the same thing, you know, when I became the director in Oklahoma for that state agency, I came in as the outsider, that agency internally, people that had been in that organization had been there for such a long time that within themselves, they had created the succession plan. And they're like, okay, well, when, when you retire, I'm going to be next in line and we're going to work <laughs> it this way and this and it. And they had this great plan until the council that hired me had a different plan for them. And they brought me in and basically they brought in the outsider who happens to be from Texas. And you know, the rivalry between Texas and Oklahoma <laughs> also happened to be the first minority to lead that organization. Mm. And they put him in and now I'm the mouse in the snake pit because you just ruined the succession plan that we all had planned. So, you know, uh, when you're talking about leading through adversity, you know, one of the council members told me, you know, we did a great job of setting you up to fail. And I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, thanks. Appreciate thanks. that. <laughs> yeah. right. But, you know, we did some good things and you always got to find the positive and the negative. And you know what? Uh, I, I left there, uh, did some great things, uh, and I, I wish nothing but the best for both of the organ every organization I've left for. I wish them. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I've been a Beta Gamma Sigma member for the last 20 years. If you're looking to hire, the right candidate is closer than you think. Beta Gamma Sigma is the International Business Honor Society, exclusively for students at the top of their class in the top 5% of business schools in the world. BGS members are academic achievers, skilled leaders, and experienced problem solvers, and their skills and experience extend beyond the classroom. They hold chapter leadership positions, attend global business summits, complete ethics trainings, and engage in world-class internships with top corporations. When you hire a Beta Gamma Sigma member, you are truly hiring the best in business. For more information, email bgshonors at betagammasigma.org to learn more about how to hire BGS members. Welcome back. So, so Jesus, these these have been really terrific examples of some of the adversity and the efforts. Can you talk about like what is really the what what does it take to lead differently through adversity? Like, what are the tools you use or skills you use? Because we've talked about outcomes and things that got in the way, but what are some of the things if you said, "Hey, leaders, wherever you are facing adversity, here's some ways to think or act or lead that's going to help you." Yeah, so the first thing is to understand that you're not alone. You may feel that you're alone, but there's a world of leaders out there. You got to learn how to network and connect to mm. people that are outside of your jurisdiction, but in your profession that understanding can relate. You know, one of my biggest mentors, uh, he's, he's not even in the police world, but he was my mentor throughout my career. And he's a successful business owner, and he's the guy that actually guided my career, and I would bounce ideas for him. So always reach out to you, to somebody. There's always help. The second thing is that you got to be like a rubber band, okay? And usually when times are good, you see the rubber bands just kind of relax. But when things start getting hard is you got to tighten up and be resilient, okay? The storm is is that old saying, says what the, the storm has come, but it's not here to stay. 
Uh, and and as you the, the harder you pull that rubber band, the more resilient it becomes. So you got to become aware of that. You also got to be very uh, aware of yourself. Okay, uh, just because you're the leader doesn't mean you're the smartest guy in the room. And if you are, you right. need to leave. Okay, um, <laughs> yeah, so you know um, you make you're gonna make mistakes, and it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from those mistakes. And you know. I know some, you know, some chiefs and stuff and, and CEOs that have gotten fired and thought that that was the end of their world and have gone on to be even greater successes now because they learned from those lessons where they failed. And here's the thing. A lot of the times you may look at it as a defeat. OK, but in reality, it was it was it was a victory because it propelled you to your next to the next higher level. Yeah, so that's yeah. kind of the things that we try to encourage our, 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 our future leaders so when you're when you're thinking about yourself and and your your personal growth as you're going through that, making sure that you're actually learning from the lessons that you're learning there, there's also the aspect of the impact on your family. You were talking about how in the first organization that you mentioned that that was impacting your family because everybody was throwing rocks at you essentially. And when you're looking at that, you're you're going through adversity. Now you have this other layer of now your family's in it. How how do you deal with that part of it? Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a lot of fun too. Um, anyway, you know, it 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 becomes in in being supportive of one another. You know, um, you know, for instance, you know, my wife's an educator. She's an she's an administrator now in the education field. Um, you know, but she was used to working in high tech schools and stuff. And we went to that one community. She was working in a building that was a hundred years old and had no technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and. Uh, you know, often being criticized and labeled a certain place because, oh, you're the you're the wife of the police chief. You must be a, a drug cartel queen. And you know, my kids, my kids coming home, you know, and, and referring to people, um, referring to people. Uh, what really kind of broke it for me was when my 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 middle son came to me and he said, hey, dad, uh, can can Kevin and Tom and the black kid come over and play? Oh, and I said, what? Like, yeah, can I, know, I said, I heard you what is the black kid's name he's well yeah this is his name so why are you referring to him as the black he said dad they refer to me as the brown kid anyway everywhere i go they don't call me crazy they just call me the brown kid and i'm like okay it's time to it's time to go you know uh and that's when we it was kind of funny though because that's when i started applying for positions uh around the country you know and i was a finalist in some pretty major cities however that community and i'm not let me rephrase that not that community certain people in that community um, made it impossible for me to leave because they were calling, you know, these certain cities and, and, and basically blackballing me. Mm. Um, and I was kind of like, well, that's funny. You don't want me to stay and you don't want me to leave. So you should be happy that I'm applying somewhere and actually being considered that you should just let me leave. You know, <laughs> So um, the way we handled it is just, you know, just being strong, believing in our faith and, and knowing that, that, you know, that the nightmare wasn't here to stay. You know, yeah. we we're going to wake up at some point and, and leave. And, you know, luckily, uh, my wife and my children are very strong. And, and what I like about that is that they've been there with me every step of the way. The ups, the goods, the downs and the bads. And they've always been supportive. And that's what has been our success story. It's just that, you know, we 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 have faith in ourselves and in our, in our God and we just move forward. So I'm curious, Jesus. When you're going into these situations or you're in them, some you stepped into, some they were just there. And when you had the longer run, 
Talk about how you interacted with the team and tried to get them or did get them engaged in the mission versus you trying to do it alone when you said you're not alone. Yeah, you can't, you got to get the team engaged too. So how did you address that, especially in the face of adversity? And it's funny that you say that because I sit here and I go, you know, I've read just about every book on leadership (laughs) and I've done everything by the book and it didn't work. (laughs) All right. Okay. So then I tried doing it this way. And it didn't work. <laughs> so then that's why I developed this idea that leadership is really based more on a perspective that the person that you're trying to lead has of you and what benefit you have for them. Yeah. So you got to kind of basically get everybody on individually and try to find what motivates that one person to yep. get them on your team. But when you're leading an agency of you know 1,200 people, 300 people, even 74, the smallest agency I led was 42, that's 42 different ways I have to interact with people in yeah. my own agency just to get them to buy into it. Some of them will buy into it because they see the vision and they can get it and, and they're willing to do. But one of the things that I did is I did a lot of one-on-ones. You know, Anytime I get to an agency, I, I uh, evaluate it by meeting with every member of the organization, whether they're sworn or civilian personnel, get to know them, take their notes, find out what their complaints are, what their pros are and cons, and try to kind of see whether or not they're that person that's going to say, hey, I'm great, but, but you know that Craig guy? Trust that guy. Thank <clears throat> Well, let me see. I've just known you for a minute and you're already talking smack right. about somebody. So I guess I'd be careful with you. Yeah. Right? Trust is now uh, not yeah. very high. <laughs> yeah. So, so those are the kind of efforts that you take. And, you know, and one of the things that's, that's hilarious is that I did a lot of, I do a lot of engagement with my, with my staff. And sometimes it's just, just don't like you. <laughs> it's okay. You know, I would do, I would do things like, a root root beer float Friday, I used to call it. You know, let's start, let's end the let's end the day by having a root beer float. I'd go out and buy a bunch of root beer, bring a bunch of ice cream, make everybody root beers and just kind of chill out, drink a root beer, enjoy it. And you can honestly say you had a beer at work. Just, you know. <laughs> um we did things like that. We did things like, you know, employee of the month, employee of the quarter, civilian of the quarter. Uh, you know, for Christmas I had the twelve the twelve days before Christmas and I went out and I would spend a fortune, you know, uh, on buying gifts and gift cards and, and, and things like that. And we would raffle them off, not necessarily raffle them off. We'd put your ID number and we'd pull it out. And every day was a different theme, you know, like, you know, like um, maybe the 12th day of Christmas was hot chocolate. So we would open up <laughs> the day with a hot chocolate for everybody and things like that. And some people bought in and some people were like, oh, you're just trying to buy us. I'm like, oh, yeah, but <laughs> so I was like, but yeah, I mean, hey, I'm, I'm trying to get you on my side. So, uh, and, and that's why right now, if if you look at the numbers, you know, a police chief's tenure, and even a CEO's tenure uh, in the private industry, is between one to three years now. You know, because if you can't re- prove results within one to three years, you're out the window. You know? That's crazy because really at that at that level in a larger organization, the the impact of a good leader at that level can be 10, 20, 50 years. And you have to have some time in there for some of those strategies to play out into that longer term. Well, look at it this way, you know. So for instance, you know, I was just I was a finalist um right before i retired for for a major city and i was really excited that i had finally made the major leagues i was like wow i'm, I'm one of the three you're considering for this job and uh 
I'm, I'm blessed that I didn't get the job because the mayor that made the decision on who he hired lost the election. Mm. Uh, and I'm a, you're appointed by the mayor. <laughs> so, you know, here comes in, you know, you, you're appointed by him and he lost the election and half of the city council lost the election. Mm. So now the new guy coming in is like, well, I know I'm not your guy. So how long are you going to let me stay? Mm. You know, and when you need, when you talk about changing a culture, it takes years to change. Right. You can't do it overnight. You know, and that's kind of what happened with me up in that East Texas town is that I was hired by very progressive individuals who, unfortunately, in in year two, lost the election. And uh, while they didn't come, the new people didn't come in and say, get out. They did come in and say, hey, knock it off. No more community based policing. None of this stuff. But that's what police is all about. So you want me to do my job by not doing my job? Yeah, again, we don't play that. Right. So it sounds like what you ran into using a word that maybe a different word, like in corporate America, and I don't mean big companies in business, we often talk about the fact that every team member has baggage. Absolutely. I call it employment baggage, which is mm-hmm. some life baggage. It doesn't, even if their first job, they have beliefs about what work is, what they saw with their yep. parents or on TV. And I think a lot of times leaders assume it's a clean slate. And you came in where they had all this baggage from their position, whatever the period. But the reality is they also, as a group, I'm going to say as a group, there was multicultural baggage too. Mm-hmm. And where it was top of mind, where in a, in a company that may not be as impactful, but in law enforcement, that's a, that's a day-to-day issue. So how did you see that play out? The fact that that was a piece of the, you said it, the perception, because that's what baggage is. I, mm-hmm. I had an experience, now I have a perception of mm-hmm. things, people, situations. How did you see that play out if, if it was different? And did you try any different strategies because of that unique, I'll call it baggage? Yeah. So, you know, when, you know, one of the things as soon as I realized, you know, is you try to change that perception by trying to learn the cultures and the attitudes of those individuals that you are now coming in and and learn, you know, what's important to them. Right. Uh, However, you know, again, it's perception and perception, I think they say is what uh, 90% reality and 10% the truth. So, you know, for instance, in that one community that I came in before I had even gotten started, the rumors were that, you know, I was a I was a drug cartel member who being uh, supplanted into East Texas because I-20 was a major corridor that ran through there. And I was wow. going to be the guy who was going to allow the drug cartels to funnel. I'm like, can you even make this stuff up? <laughs> OK, you know, um, you know, my wife was often referred to as the Mexican bar because I have no idea why my wife married me because she's just gorgeous. And, um, you know, everyone's all like, well, you see, look at her and look at him. He's got to be in the cartel because he's got money and power. And it's like too many people watch Breaking Bad. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, oh, OK, so, you know, I mean, you're stuck in that perception and you can't change it, you know, and and then, you know, you know, there, there's stories. That, like I said earlier, there, there's there's multitudes of stories about me that that are the majority of them, all of them are pretty much untrue. Um, that that people would just gravitate to, and they they read it and they buy it, and, and that was the way it is. So it was really hard to change that perception of of who you were because 
they weren't willing to change. And that's the problem with today's society is that who, you know, I mean, this is going to sound kind of weird. So who you were yesterday doesn't necessarily mean that's who you are today, you know. And that's the beautiful thing about, you know, living in, in, in what we all consider to be one of the greatest countries in the world is the fact that you do get a second, a third and a fourth chance. And if you were somebody 10 years ago, but you've spent the last 10 years reinventing who you are and following a different matrix, people should let you live in that current matrix and stop referring you back to who you were 10 years ago. But they need to have a conversation with you to understand that right. you've made a change. And people are not willing to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's the hard thing. That's what I think we find ourselves in, in that hard reality. So I hope I answered your question because I think <laughs> I kind of went all the way around it. But it, it's a deeper rooted question to try to answer without having to get all that information out first. Well, I think one of the challenges of changing perception is, and Craig ref alluded to it about that communication, because what I've seen is, I don't fully understand where it comes from, but there's almost this hard wiring to be right. <laughs> and what I mean by that is the hard wiring is if I have a pre if I have a perception of you, Jesus, that hard wiring is going to cause me to see things through the lens that that's true. And when you engage in behavior that's different, many times I won't even see it. I literally won't see that mm -hmm. that's different mm -hmm. because I'm trained, I, my brain is trained to see the stuff that says, yep, there he is, that's the kind of person he is. And I think that's one of the hardest things about creating change, especially in an organization. Well, that comes back to what we talk about, about labels and how they're applied. We, we apply labels with duct tape, not, not sticky notes, right? So they're there and it's really hard to pull those off. We really have to work to, to say, oh, okay, wow, this person really is different. So, so there's these circumstances. And I guess my first question to you, Jesus, is do you believe you would have faced the same perception if you had not been a Hispanic man of, of Mexican descent? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, and, and, and I'm going I'm to let me clarify this, you know. By no way or any means do I feel or feel that that uh, everybody in the world is racist and uh, has anything against Hispanics, because the majority of the opportunities I've gotten, I've gotten from Caucasian male, you know, uh, who have helped me move my career. My mentors are white Caucasian male, um, you know. So, but yeah, absolutely, I've had to work, and I think a lot of people of my skin color and heritage have had to work three or four times harder than the average person because of the nature of who we are and what we are, you know, um, whether you agree with him or not, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the last president of the United States labeled us all criminals and rapists and drug members and yada, yada. Maybe that was not his intention. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that maybe that wasn't his intention, but he's the most powerful man in the world. And he said that. And you just That's made it harder, you know? Yeah. So like a lot of people ask me, like, why a PhD? And it's like, because you don't understand that I need the PhD to continue to move forward if I want mm. to because of my skin color, you know? I mean, wow. I've literally lost jobs, uh, opportunities to advance my career in law enforcement for the mere fact of the fact that, you know what, I know I was more... Uh, experienced, educated than the person that took the job for me. 
but I could read between the lines, you know, and, and I don't consider myself to be, you know, jaded or anything like that by racial issues, but we need to wake up in America and, and call it what it is. Racism exists, yeah. unfortunately, and it it's here to stay. I don't know how we're going to change it, but yeah. Oh yeah. To answer your question, yeah, simple for yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, uh, let me take you to the next level with that question and take mm-hmm. it away from the race question, uh, the difference question, but your count, your coaching, mentoring, guiding leaders today. And in some way, shape or form, many of them are going to be dealing with perceptions about them. Some of those can be racially motivated. Many are not right. So, but they're, they're dealing with that. And the, given the adversity you've been through, what do you tell leaders today? who look at you and say, there's this perception of me. Right. So do you, how yeah. do you mentor them? So when we talk about that is that, you know, there's a, there's an old, um, there's an old thing that says that, you know, you, you need to reinvent yourself and constantly reinvent yourself to keep people guessing who you are to the <laughs> point where they don't know who you are. So they can't talk about you, um, which I found to be false, of course, because no matter how many times you reinvent right. yourself, people are going to talk about so we, 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 we talk about the perception. We, we look back and we see exactly, is it a verbal spoken perception? Because that's easy to, that's a lot easier to change than if it's on, on the internet and it's a perception or a story that's been written about you. How do we change that? You know? So honestly, what we say to them, and this is the honest truth that we really just do say is like, look, let's work on the perception and this is how we're going to do it. And we either change your leadership style or adjust your leadership style or who's the person leading the call for this perception? And is it time for them to leave your organization? And can you get rid of that person? And that's why in, in my book that's upcoming, you know, I have an entire chapter entitled, It's Okay to Piss People Off. <laughs> you know, because sometimes you're going to have to make some decisions of having to get rid of individuals that are carrying that perception and, and, and leading the charge of that perception. So... Unfortunately, there also comes a consequence. So there's really no right or wrong answers to how you're going to deal with that because, you know, we have seen, I mean, and I like to use her, I mean, look at Kim Kardashian. Look at the reason she became famous and everybody kind of seemed to forgot why she became famous. Uh, and now everybody just is like, oh my God, she's the most famous person in the world. She has reinvented herself several times and no matter what she does, you know, people still talk about her, but she seems to always come out on top. So it goes back to being the rubber band. You got to learn how to be that rubber band that when stretched, you're going to hold tight and firm on your beliefs and play the game by your terms and doing what is right because it's the right. Hmm. I really like that. I, as you said that, Hey Zeus, a thought hit me about that pissing people off. Maybe it's a tweak of <clears throat> it's all right for people to be pissed off at me because the, when I say for me to piss people off, it feels like I'm trying to piss them off. But the reality is when I do what is right and I stand in my values, people will be pissed off. The question is, am I okay with them deciding to be pissed off? Because that was their decision. As long as I do it in a good way and with integrity with myself. Right. And that's kind of what goes by to, you know, it's okay. And you're right. I guess just find a better way to say that. But you're right. I mean, kind of what I'm saying is that it's okay to piss people off because you're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And it benefits everybody. But. You also have to be ready for the consequences that are going to come for doing the right thing. Because as you know, when you do the right thing, a lot of the times you end up on the short end of the stick. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, some things flashed through my head. None of them landed of so many things in the media that we see where that situation has happened in recent times where people have done, and, and we could argue about everybody's got a different version of what's the right thing too, yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, that's part of the challenge of it. But all I know is what's right for me. And I choose to uh, be grounded in that and walk that, you know, walk my talk or I choose not to. The rest of the world is going to make their own judgments of me from that. So, right. Well, I think that when, you know, it kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier, Jesus, about the whole issue of is this going to benefit me? And that's, that's the, that bar that people are set at. Is it going to impact me? Okay. Am I going to have to change? Am I going to get more or less because of this decision? You know, am I going to have to change something? And when it comes back to that personal level and people are constantly evaluating on, on the personal level, it really means that they're not bought into the vision of the organization as well, yeah. or that they're, they're, for some reason, they're not there. They're focused on themselves. Maybe it's a trust issue. Maybe it's something else. Yeah. You know, just going back uh, to what Jeff was saying is that, you know, at the end of the day, okay, end of the day, regardless of what you do. As long as you're okay with it and you can live with it and yep. sleep comfortably at the end of the night, mm-hmm. then that was the right thing to do. Right. Whether it was or wasn't, as long as you can do that, that's it. And you know what? I sleep very comfortably at night nowadays. And uh, <laughs> you know, going back to what you were saying, Craig, you know, it, 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 it is true. I mean, and it's upsetting and it's sad to see that our society has become about what about me? Right. What's in it for me as opposed to how do we get back to being the world's leader in the greatest nation on God's green earth. Because I know I'm going to upset a lot of people, but we're no longer that nation. You know, we are not. And and we need to get back on that because we need to start as John F. Kennedy, you know, what's John F. Kennedy said, don't ask what, what we can do for you. Ask what you can do for us, for the, for the country. And let's move that forward. And that's the mentality that we got to get back in order yeah. to become that industrial leader again. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm with you, Jesus. This has been so uh, interesting, intriguing, as I thought it would be. Uh, grateful for you to have been here. I know you've Thank mentioned you. uh, the book a couple times, but we always want to ask our guests, is there anything in particular you want to promote that's going on for you or your business right now? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, the most important thing for us right now is, is, our, is, is the book that's coming out. You know, it's been, it's been in the works for about four years, and it's finally <laughs> becoming a reality. It's being released on July 4th of this year. That's a good time uh, for a release. Yeah, yeah. We thought it was it's good Independence Day. It's a great day. You know, it's freedom. Um, and it's unmasking leadership, what they don't teach you about leadership in school. Um, and uh, it's it's kind of a it's kind of an in your face, it's a little bit of a dark read, but it's just the honest truth uh, of what to expect when you become the leader. Because I'll be honest with you, when I became a formal leader. I thought I was, you know, it's like, hey, I get to make all the cool decisions and I get to do this and I get to do that. And this is so awesome. And at the end of my first year, I sat there going, what the hell did I just do? Why did I choose this route? You know, and but nobody had taught me the difference. So right now, if you go to my website, jesuscompound.com or leadingthroughadversity.com, you can get the book for 15 bucks. It's five dollars less than what it is a pre-order. You won't get it till after July 4th. But uh, the good thing is that it will be autographed by me, or you can wait till July 4th and it'll be available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, book companies, and all of that. Awesome, Jesus. So you mentioned the website. If 
are that the best way for people to reach out to you or is there another way? Yeah, yeah, actually. So if you just go to the website, either one of the websites, there's a contact site, uh, contact contact me. Uh, emails come directly to me. I answer most of them. Uh, some of them do go to my assistant. Uh, I know like the book orders are going to my assistant and stuff like that. But uh, my telephone number is there, the business number is there, and email address and everything is on those websites. Fantastic. We always wrap up with a question or two. I'm going to just do one question today. And we haven't used this one in a while. So my question to you, Jesus, is Craig and I are movie people. So I want you to think about movies. Uh, It could be a movie. It could be a scene. It literally could be a line that speaks to you about leadership. Every Rocky movie, <laughs> every Sylvester Stallone. I mean, and, and it's funny because uh, I, I always find a new nugget in every time I watch a Sylvester Stallone movie. You know, it's it's. Uh, but but literally, the best line was Rocky Five, where he's talking to his Rocky. I don't know, one of the I've lost count. Uh, where he's talking to his son. Uh, about how you let somebody change you and that's not who you are and about nothing in life hitting harder than life itself. And it's not about beating life because you're never going to beat life, man. Mike Tyson, I guess I just like boxing. Mike Tyson has a, a, a great analogy where he says, every boxer I've ever faced walked into the ring with a plan to like knock it in the face. <laughs> and then they said, holy smokes, now what? And that's what life is. You know, but it's not about beating it. It's about moving forward. And how do you continue to move forward? One of the greatest, uh, I think that's just one of the greatest lines of all time. Or, you know, I think it was in Rocky three when Mr. T tells him, uh, I'm going to break you. And, and he, Rocky goes, go for it. That's what, that's what you got to do. You know, as a leader, you got to do it. You just got to keep doing the right thing. Leadership is about doing the right thing, even if it's not the popular thing. Well, Jesus, this has been so enjoyable. Uh, and challenging too, right? Because this is the real thing. You've been in it. You've been in the fires of leadership and doing so in a world that is, is a long way off, frankly, in my opinion, from uh, interacting within our differences uh, in a good way. So thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you for having me on your show. I enjoyed every minute of it. I really did. Thank you. Great. Good to have you. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.